The theme song for the sequel cast is written and performed by Mark with a C. The sequel cast is also a proud member of the Battleship Pretension podcast fleet. You can listen to the sequel cast streaming on the Stitcher app at stitcher.com. Get more episodes of the sequel cast from sequelcast.com. Enjoy the show. You must let me have it. It's a magnificent specimen. After the credits roll, there's always more to tell. Especially when the video sounds are doing really well. From shock treatment to Jason X to Police Academy 6. This is Sequel Cast. And they are unsurpassed at following a franchise until the better end. This is Sequel Cast. And your hosts are best that I inform you that the show will now begin. Hello and welcome to the Sequel Cast. The Sequel Cast is a podcast looking at movies in a franchise one film at a time. I'm your host, Matt. With me is Thrasher. Hello, listeners. And we have a very special guest. He is the host of a podcast called I Do Movies Badly, where he gets to experience uh, important filmmakers and their works that are new to him. Jim Rohner, welcome to the sequel cast. Thank you very much. I, I'm, I'm very pleased to be here. I'll be in a, in a, a makeshift uh, sort of way. Um, and I will say... Um, I'm especially pleased to be here because in my, albeit uh, brief podcast history, this is the first time I've ever been a guest on somebody else's podcast. Cool. Congratulations. We're we're glad to have you. And um, I guess before we start talking about Alien 3, how did you come up with the idea for your podcast, I Do Movies Badly? (laughs) Um, uh, Straight up guilt and shame for the most part. (laughs) I've, I've been I have been doing um, online film criticism uh, really since 2006, since after I graduated college. And um, while that was always very impressive to my friends and family, it wasn't so impressive to me or to the people who um, had been into film since they were uh, little kids. Whereas I, film was very much something I stumbled upon late in life and realized that I had a passion for it. But because I did stumble upon it a little bit later, I realized that there was large gaps in the the influences and the things that, that that people found important within cinematic circles and really uh, just listening to a lot of podcasts such as, you know, you guys, Battleship Retention, uh, The Golden Briefcase, a lot of other podcasts, being really intimidated by just the knowledge that these people had and kind of thinking, well, this is my excuse to to catch up, really. Well, and I think it's smart you limit it to three films per director because mm. um, that way you're not stuck with, like, Oh, I don't know, like four months and Woody Allen or whatever it would be. <laughs> and and I have toyed with the idea of doing Woody Allen um, multiple mm-hmm. episodes, but maybe doing like Woody Allen in the seventies and Woody Allen in the eighties. Right, and that sort right. Of thing. Woody Allen when he did physical shtick. <laughs> right. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, his, uh, the early ones. Um, yeah. I mean, context I think is important. I, I, everyone has gaps in their their film knowledge. I recall I took a intro to film history course in college. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that you start sort of chronologically with silent films and you basically progress to the modern day. Sure. And near the beginning, they said, OK, you know, we're going to they didn't have time to show us full movies. Unfortunately, we just watched clips and they said, mm-hmm. we're going to watch Scarface. And a lot of people in the class thought they meant Scarface with Al Pacino. <laughs> but they were talking about the uh, the earlier, uh, the original Scarface film. Right. Yeah, no, it's been um, it's it's been a lot of fun. It's been uh, honestly intimidating because uh, I certainly the the second month of my podcast was Ingmar Bergman, a film mm. filmmaker with whom I struggled greatly, um, and 
kind of had to be talked down uh, off the ledge by a friend because after Wild Strawberries, which I struggled greatly with, after being told it was his most accessible film, I said, uh, why, why would anyone want to listen to a guy who has no idea what he's talking about? Um, and I, I kind of had to be convinced that, listen, the reason that people would be listening to your podcast is because they're experiencing it the, the same way you are, which uh, was a big help, certainly. Definitely. Well, let's get on to, to Alien 3. It uh, came out in 92, so mm-hmm. six years after the second film, Aliens, uh, the directorial debut of David Fincher, mm-hmm. although he tends to avoid talking about this one. <laughs> I, once again, I've got to applaud the makers of this movie for taking their time uh, between installments in the series, even though in this case it, it wasn't really by choice. It was because of a troubled production. Yeah, I, I was about to say, like, yeah, taking their time, but didn't seem like there was, they, they took quite enough time. Yeah, like, looking at the, the production history of, of this movie and actually seeing some of the featurettes about the Alien Cube that we didn't see, and I'm <laughs> going to be a jackass and refer to it as Alien Cube throughout <laughs> this podcast, uh, like, it, it really feels like this. there were just so many moving parts, none of which any one person could grab and assemble into a functioning film. Yeah. Um, I I support your your decision to call it Alien Cubed. I prefer to call it Alien Three, but pretend that the E is the three, like in the third Taken film. <laughs> mm. You know, I think had the film come out later, they might have very well done that in uh, in the marketing on uh, the um, you know the special edition DVDs and Blu-rays of this. They have a really good uh, documentary about all the different storylines mm-hmm. they uh, tried. Have you seen that, Jim? I know I haven't I haven't seen the actual documentary yet and I don't have any excuse not to because I have the uh the Alien anthology on Blu-ray and I know that yep. that's one of the special features but I just haven't sat around and, and actually got into it. I, I know I have read thoroughly IMDb trivia and that sort of stuff and and yeah just hearing the different versions uh, I mean it was a uh, there was one one version where it was going to be a, a a planet made entirely out of wood or something like that and there was going to be a monastery instead of a prison. That's right. Yeah, that's the one that got close to being made it would have been with director vincent ward and they they spent um you know millions of dollars building sets and all these things it was all storyboarded and then they just had too many disagreements but then they kept elements of that plot with uh but made it as as a prison instead of sort of a monastery wooden planet Mm -hmm. um one version of alien 3 would have been with ripley in a very minor role and it would have focused on hicks instead yeah and, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, you know, uh, Rennie Harlan almost did Alien 3. Yes. And he wanted to make it about um, going back to the alien planet and sort of make it more about the aliens. Yes. And and there was um, there was one filmmaker attached, too, which I... Well, not attached, but I believe they did actually approach Ridley Scott again, and he he actually wanted to make it more of a Prometheus, more of an origin sort of story. Mm-hmm. Yep, that... Um, which I'm glad yeah. that didn't turn out, because I've seen Prometheus, and wow, what a scene. <laughs> yeah, we'll be talking about that one in a few weeks. Um, William Gibson wrote a script yes. for Alien 3, so a lot of interesting people worked on this, and I I did not see this film until way after Alien 1 and 2, and mm-hmm. I just saw it because my dad rented it, he watched it by himself, said it sucked, but it was just sitting there on the on the dining room table. I picked it up and decided to watch it, and uh, 
it's one of those I think you have to watch multiple times to kind of understand what's going on. And certainly in the extended cut, you have more uh, going on. Thrasher, when did you first see Alien 3? I'm I'm not entirely sure because you, you, uh, this is the Alien movie that everybody – like warned me away from the the when this came out the general impression seemed to be that this was a terrible movie and i don't think i saw it i honestly do not remember when i first saw it but i know it was several years uh, after after the initial release and i have to say having seen it it's not that bad i don't think it's the alien sequel any of us wanted but i don't think it's a bad film and what about you jim the first time i saw it was actually um in in high school, I had. I, I, it's funny. I can't tell you when I first saw the the first two, but Alien Three. I remember seeing very distinctly because I borrowed. Um, uh, and this is I'm dating myself a little bit. Borrowed a, a VHS copy of the Alien trilogy, um, and sat down one summer and watched them and loved the first one and loved this uh, Aliens. And then remember being really disappointed in Alien Three because two of my favorite characters from Aliens, Hicks and uh, and Newt. <laughs> Yeah. Are, are killed off immediately and rather <laughs> unceremoniously. Um, that is my least favorite part of this movie, mm-hmm. is the fact that they are not in it. Yeah, I, I was upset with it too, especially because if you think if the – especially the, the Hicks character, how, how – if his involvement uh, – or I should say if he was actually involved in this, how much of an interesting dynamic would that have added, especially you know as a – kind of as, maybe as Ripley's defender or that sort mm, of thing. right. Yeah, no, and I remember I remember absolutely hating it, and honestly, I can't even remember when I started looking at it in a new light. But certainly within the last few years, I've I've found myself defending Alien Three uh, quite fiercely because there seems to be a quite a, a backlash against this one. Yeah, you know, it it is ballsy with what they ended up with in that the, the second Alien film, Aliens has so many more creatures and is all about the tech. And then this is more stripped down more like the, um, original in a way, but then it's, it's still doing its own thing. I mean, Ripley is very much in danger being the only, uh, I guess in all three, the three films, at least the first three films, at least she's the only woman, right? Always surrounded by men. Um, but well, this... there, there, there's a the Veronica Cartwright character in Alien. I forget what her name is, but oh shit, that's right. I'm sorry. Yeah, who? Okay, but yeah, I mean, she's threatened by the the men that are around her in this one. I love the look of Ripley with the shaved head. <laughs> it's that is a striking look. Definitely. I mean that um, the freeze frame of the the alien head close to her with the bald head and she's sort of oh, yeah. crying. What? It's really intense. And, and such a striking and bold look that there was actually a stipulation in her contract where if she had to go back for reshoots and shave it again, <laughs> it would cost an extra $40,000. Sure. <laughs> but, yeah, and, and I don't know, hmm, I don't, I don't know if we want to get right into it. It's certainly your podcast and you guys are, 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 are running the show, but... Um, I, I remember I've actually went through cycles with Alien 3 where I, I hated it and then I really started defending it. And now I'm kind of in the middle in the sense of recognizing it is a very deeply flawed film. Uh, but certainly one that, at least in the context of the films that come after it, Alien Resurrection and Prometheus does not deserve, in my opinion, all the bile that it gets heaped on it. Um, especially considering 
the nightmare stories about the production and a first-time director, considering those two constraints, how coherent and, and competent it actually comes out being. Right. You looked at the... You know, I think I initially didn't like this film, and I like it a bit more now, and I think I started to stop looking at it as an alien movie and more of a prison movie. Mm. And then I started to accept it a bit more. I mean, yes, the alien is in it, but it's not as much of a focus as in... Um, the second movie, and the character, you have really good actors here playing all, all the different prisoners. Yeah. You have uh, Charles Dance, you have uh, Pete Postlethwaite, um, and, and so Paul forth. McGann. Paul McGann, right? Yeah, Charles, uh, Charles S. Dutton is fantastic in it, too. That's right. And so you get those actors playing against each other. Um, I think the, the end of the film is quite exciting. With oh sure, chasing the the alien, and you get some some good action in there. I mean, it it is funny. You look back at the time; they did have these Alien Three video games where there was tons of aliens everywhere. I think the arcade game was called Alien oh. Three: The Gun, um, <laughs> and, and that couldn't be more opposite of what the the film represents. Yeah. You never know. There could have been uh, there could have been a draft of the script where there were hundreds of aliens. <laughs> I, I'm sure there were earlier. <laughs> In the yeah. process, and, and it's it's funny, kind of if you think of, uh, I, I mean, this is this is a, a a script where clearly there are too many cooks in the kitchen because the the story doesn't make a whole lot of sense, um, and especially even if you think about it, really kind of thematically, the first one was isolation and the these uh this like unprepared, inexperienced crew members, and then the pendulum swings in the opposite direction with aliens where. It's a bunch of Marines, and they're they're very like equipped to deal with this alien threat, and they're still massacred. And then Alien Three kind of comes back to more of that first idea of like, oh, a, a small crew of people who are not prepared to deal with an alien threat. So it's, it kind of borrows from that first one, um, especially in the sense of the, you know here are real salt of the earth you know kind of scumbag people, well, not kind of scumbag people, they're all criminals, but uh, and and just uh, they they keep mentioning in the film like oh this alien is different from the other ones but we never really get that sense because they're only mm. kind of ever told about it um and then shown it in some pretty admittedly bad computer effects right i mean some of the time it's stop motion some of the time it's early early cg early cg as you can tell <laughs> yeah. uh certainly um yeah on the uh on the Blu-ray and DVD, there's a neat segment where they talk to H.R. Giger, who did submit designs for Alien 3 that weren't really used, and he had concepts of, like, the alien kissing a prisoner, because <laughs> and it would look more feminine, like a woman. Like, it's very... Um, it's all very, very psychosexual. Very psychosexual, very Giger and, and, and bizarre. So yeah, but... that design... There's a design he talks about, which is one of the oh. ones that didn't get used, yeah. where the the... the dome of the alien's head was going to be much more transparent. You could, like, see its brain and see these, like, finger appendages constantly moving inside the alien's skull. Oh, I would love to see that animated. Yeah, and, and but I think even, um, because this is the only, in the Alien anthology, this is the only, obviously, the only film that doesn't have a commentary track from its director because David Fincher <laughs> doesn't want anything to do with it. Right. So I think, I think the primary commentary tracks are the, the visual effects supervisors. Uh-huh. Uh, 
And they keep, I, I think they, and correct me if I'm wrong, because it's been a while since I've watched it with the commentary track, but they, they kind of talk about it, about how the alien is almost has like a, a dog-like and canine quality, which certainly kind of explains how, in, at least in the theatrical version, it, it bursts out of a dog for the first time. But we, we don't, but that's, that's never really made clear in the film. And, and I, I think that has a lot to do with the fact that, like, that like you said, Matt, it's, it's not so much an alien film, but almost kind of out of necessity in a way. You talk about the the alien in this film being being uh, birthed uh, from a dog, and there's a couple of things we can talk about there. But uh, among other things, uh, that scene sort of adds more fuel to a notion that's been part of, I guess, what I'll call the aliens expanded universe, which is the notion that the xenomorphs borrow traits from mm. whatever host birthed them. Which is heavily featured in the comic books that Dark Horse put out, and in some of the novel adaptations. I don't think I was aware of that. Yeah, it's it's actually used to justify some material in Aliens versus Predators, but that's a podcast for another day. <laughs> uh. Trying to justify anything in Alien versus Predators is just rearranging deck chairs in the Titanic. I think. <laughs> I think the only good thing I can say about Alien vs. Predator is it's not Alien vs. Predator Requiem, the second one. <laughs> Which I admittedly haven't seen and probably uh, never will. The second one, it takes it's like a, a high school movie that happens to have aliens in it. The lead and character predators. the lead character is a pizza boy. It's oh boy, it's uh, what, what what's the name of the of the pair that directed that movie? Uh gee, some special effects guys. Um, yeah, are they the same guys who did uh, that that invasion movie where the aliens were sucking brains out of people? Oh fuck those guys! Um, don't think so. Here they did the effects on Battle L.A. Oh yeah, they they did Skyline. Battle. That's what I'm thinking of. But these guys are called. Yes, yeah, the same people that did Skyline, that's right. It's the brothers Strauss. Oh jeez. Greg and Colin Strauss. Yeah, and those guys, if I'm if I'm not mistaken, they were doing the special effects for Battle LA and then ditched it to make Skyline. Yep. Actually there was a, a, a lawsuit because they were out the, the producers of uh, Battle LA uh claimed that they used uh copyrighted uh VFX assets from uh Battle LA in Skyline. Huh. Um, <laughs> they, this is this is already way more talk than these than these two deserve. <laughs> Good point. But, but yeah, they... oh, sorry, oh, go ahead. I, well, because I was going to say the you you had brought up this idea of like uh, it coming out of the dog was a, a good jumping off point for a few different talking points. One of which I think is that in the the two thousand three cut, and this is let me take a, a small tangent here and say I, I I was preparing myself so much for this episode that this past weekend I watched both the 92 cut and the 2003 cut so I exposed myself to over four hours of alien three wow to be able to be able to talk about this one but in the 2003 cut if you if nobody has seen it you guys are listeners uh, the dog is not even a character um, in the 2003 cut the the creature from which the alien burst is actually uh, like oxen like these work animals that the prisoners have. Um, some of which, uh, some of the, the, the sequence in which it bursts out, some shots can still be seen in the dog one, but, uh, the dog is not even a thing in the 2003 cut, which unfortunately, from what I understand, is closest to the assembly cut that David Fincher actually wanted. Hmm. Um, and it's, it's rare 
that I can go back, uh, you know, that you can go back and kind of look at a, a theatrical cut that a studio made and then kind of a longer cut and think, yeah, the theatrical one's kind of better. But the theatrical one, I think, in the case of Alien 3, is actually much better and, and certainly 30 minutes shorter. Right. And it's been a while since I've seen this extended cut, but there is a lot more character development with um, some of the prisoners. Mm-hmm. Uh, the opening is different. They get Ripley from the shore. Yeah. And, um, but yeah, I don't, it also just makes the film kind of drag and sit there and the stuff with, with the ox just seems like really unnecessary. It's, it's very curious. It's not like they then made the alien look different or animate it to move different since it was birthed from an ox. Yeah. <laughs> well, I have to wonder, do you think the reason why they why they went with the alien being birthed out of an animal in this one simply because they felt that they had done everything they could do with, with bursting out of a human chest, that all that body horror had been spent? Uh, well, part of that stuff in the documentary is they talked about the uh, the script that was on the wooden planet had these, like, sheep-alien hybrids, um, you know, and, and kind of explored that idea. So I think it's working off of earlier versions of the script. And, yeah, they're trying to think of their own spin on it. I mean, by this time, it was a third alien film. What are you going to do to make it to make it special? But, mm-hmm. again, because they don't explain this stuff in the film, it just kind of sits there like, oh, it comes from a dog, that's weird. And then more explanation or more dog-like qualities in the alien, I guess, would have been nice. Yeah, it also raises, I think, a little bit of um, of a logistical question in the sense of, from what we understand in the, from the first two alien movies, this, this facehugger would lay an alien inside them, kind of keel over and die, and clearly it does that with, it lays an egg in Ripley, so then how is it capable of laying a, 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 a mini alien inside an animal as well? But, now, isn't isn't it in uh, the the longer cut? Isn't it made absolutely clear that there were two alien eggs uh, on that that hatched on uh, the Colonial Marines vessel, and so there were actually two separate facehuggers? I don't recall because I, I know in that opening montage in the credits, you just see the one egg, um, but then you only ever see one facehugger as as much as I as far as I recall, especially because in the in the theatrical or in the longer cut where the where it's the oxen that births it there is kind of a, a a shot where one of the guys is like he brings the oxen into the butcher room and he holds it up and he's like hey what's this thing um and that's kind of the only time we see it because i don't think they find one in in the escape pod but i i could be wrong about that um i i don't recall yeah but and i guess the you matt you already mentioned a little bit but the two other I mean, they're not big differences, but the two other differences from um, the longer cut is, yeah, it does it does spend a little bit more time on the on the fellow prisoners, which I actually find kind of a hindrance because some of the other prisoners just aren't interesting, um, and actually kind of contradicts it because Charles Dutton, you have him later on in the film saying, "I'm not the leader type," when a lot of those extra scenes do establish him as a leader, mm-hmm. but. Um, some of the extra stuff that's involved is um, the character who who witnesses one of the, the deaths and is kind of the rambling lunatic who's in, in the infirmary for for the rest of the movie. Um, he there's actually a little bit more of a storyline with him where they do end up trapping the alien, 
but because he has seen it and gone insane, finds it to be magnificent, he actually lets it out, uh, which isn't really necessary. That the, the theatrical cut cuts that whole subplot out. And then also a, another minor difference at the very end, in the theatrical cut when Ripley is falling into the, the, uh, the, uh, the furnace, the alien bursts out of her chest and she kind of holds it to her as she falls in. And that never happens in the, the extended cut. It doesn't even burst out of her chest. She just falls in and dies. That special effect where she's falling to her death is just the worst. <laughs> it's, it's hard to crown any special effect in this film as the worst, but I, I think I'd probably have to agree with you. It's like emotionally it makes sense and you feel like finally Ripley will get some rest. She's been tormented by this alien <clears throat> in some form for, for three movies now. And that the um, Wayland yutani sends someone, sends people to go and try and retrieve it from her is consistent with what they do in the rest of the series. Yeah, um, I'm actually, and I... I hate doing this with... Well, actually, let me step back first and, and talk about... Um, I, I, I get why David Fincher will want to separate himself from this film, because it certainly sounds like such a miserable experience that as a first-time director, it's amazing it didn't kill his aspirations of being a filmmaker entirely. But it, it, is, it is a flawed movie, but I think it's also, despite its flaws, which are very heavily script-based, there's still a very clear voice of a director coming through it's still very moody it's still very the, the tone is very oppressive and you really do get the first inklings of like of a guy who would eventually become david finch and i think that says a lot about him as like as an early sign that he was going to be a great director in the sense of there was still a very different tone from the two films that preceded it despite the fact that it was from all reports a shit show Right, it, it it is a an atmospheric film, moody as you put it, and it it is a shame. I wish he would speak about it, yeah. Even though if it's not one of his uh, favorites, I mean, in in the documentary you do see brief footage of him on set getting pissed off, or just, <laughs> or just pointing at people, but like they don't they they tried their hardest to get him to come to do a commentary and participate in an extended cut and he just wouldn't uh wouldn't hear anything of it unfortunately yeah it's a shame because he's um he's he's fascinating to listen to on commentary tracks too right i mean he's gee i mean certainly one of the more respected uh modern day directors that just keeps on coming out with films that are uh well liked and all dramas basically yeah and, and he's he's definitely um just listening to him talk he's definitely the smartest guy in any room that he's in um and he's he's also a huge tech nerd as well i mean you don't really get that impression from listening to him speak but from the just the stories that people tell of how meticulous he is with certain things and how it seems like a lot of movies he does are just kind of like excuses for him to toy around with certain camera technology the stuff he might have to say about this, uh, I'm sure, would be edifying. 
I mean, we can only hope that you know, in, in some future date he'll he'll kind of cool off on the movie, and you know he'll the right offer will be made, and he'll say what the hell, and he'll just he'll give a completely honest but completely informative uh, commentary for this film. I really hope so. Um, I, I would listen to him. I would listen to him making a commentary track about a movie of him beating the shit out of me. <laughs> <laughs> that's a no better compliment can be uh, can be given than that. You know, that's what he needs to do. He needs to he needs to direct a comedy about a young up and coming filmmaker who's put in charge of a troubled production of a sci fi horror movie. <laughs> <laughs> just make it all autobiographical and kind of, you know, get out all of his uh, tension and resentment built up from the making of Alien Cubed. <laughs> if you want to oh. see a movie that's all about one guy yelling at someone else, see uh, Kevin Spacey in Swimming with Sharks. Oh. oh, yeah, Kevin Spacey is pretty good at yelling at people. Yeah, Swimming with Sharks is a film he did in the uh, early 90s. Where he's like a Hollywood, he's a Hollywood executive, and I forget the other actor plays kind of like his intern, and it's just the intern being screamed at over and over again, <laughs> and the intern eventually takes his boss uh, hostage, and starts to torture him. That's and, not, that's not Giovanni Ribisi, is it? Or is that that's Boiler Room? Yeah, no, that's Boiler Room. It's not Giovanni Ribisi, but it's um, let me look up that actor's name. It's not. It's not an especially well-known actor. Uh-huh. Um, but if, if you like Kevin Spacey... Okay, yeah, the intern is played by Frank Whaley. Oh my god, yes, Frank Whaley. I love Frank Whaley. So if, <clears throat> if you like those two actors, you might enjoy uh, Swimming with Sharks. Came out in 94. Frank Whaley plays a really good... like Can, can do a really good guy who's, uh, who's put upon and kind of um, mowed over. Um, there's a... There are many films in the, the catalog of, of John Hughes which get a lot of praise, and rightfully so, but one of which that I particularly love, which he didn't direct but he wrote, was a comedy from, I think it was 92, called Career Opportunities. And it stars Frank Whaley and Jennifer Connelly. And Frank Whaley is essentially a, a teenager who's such a bullshitter that nobody nobody respects him except for local neighborhood kids who, who think he's the coolest guy in the world. And he he gets a, a last chance uh, at respectability by getting a job as a night cleanup boy at Target, um, and on the first night gets ends up getting locked in there uh, by the head custodian, and he gets locked in there with Jennifer Connelly, which every man should immediately um, be able to understand where the interest comes from on a surface level, at least. But it's it's really it's really really good. It's also got a Dermot Mulroney uh, in it as well. Uh, it, it's it's worth checking out, I think. Okay, but that's that. But that's that's besides pretty much everything that we've we've been talking about. So, um, but uh, uh, it, it's nice to see Lance Henriksen back in the film. Oh uh, yes, but I'm not sure how necessary it was. Yeah, and that and that's that's an interesting little thing too because. I remember when I first watched it, there's that scene at the end where, where Paul McGann, or I guess um, derogatorily referred to as 85, uh, 85 um, where he smacks Lance uh, Henriksen in the head with a wrench. And then there's this weird makeup effect where it seems like his, like his ear and half of his head is kind of literally hanging off of his face. Uh, and when I remember seeing that for the first time and thinking like, wait, is he actually an android? Because how could a man survive that attack? Um, 
and in the extended cut there he makes it very clear to scream to Ripley after that happens I'm not an android I'm not an android and they kind of cut that out in the 92 one kind of leading to believe that there's still a little bit of ambiguity as to whether he's actually a real guy or not which is because if he's not an android, what is he? Is he a clone? Because because if he was the guy the robots were modeled after, wouldn't he be like a hundred or so years old at this point? Well, and to make things more confusing, in Alien vs. Predator, Lance Henriksen plays Wayland of the Wayland Yutani Corporation. Oh, that's right. So, I mean, I think the implication is Bishop is modeled after him, but whether it's supposed to be a an android or, or not or whatever in the theatrical film I, I don't really know um but yeah him getting attacked on the head like that's a bit like ash getting attacked in the first movie yeah and and i almost wonder if there's because i don't know now thrasher you mentioned the idea of of comics and the other world stuff do they do they explore any of that like in in the comics just like the the wayland yutani corporation as as an entity at all the uh it's, from what I recall, and keeping in mind I haven't read any of these comics since the 90s, they did a pretty good job in the comic keeping the corporation about as distant in the comics as they did in the movies. Every now and then you might see an executive or a boardroom, but they didn't go into too much of the nuts and bolts of how the company worked and how it made its money other than it had contracts to colonize and terraform planets. Although they did they did have a ball with the idea of uh, Whalen Utani scientists finally getting chances to experiment with alien DNA to the point where there was uh, I want it was a cult, it might have been called deadliest of the species but there was a story arc that culminated in a Whalen Utani scientist genetically engineering a male uh, breeding alien like a male version of an alien queen, uh, which leads hmm. to an awesome fight scene between two gigantic uh, acid-bleeding aliens. <laughs> and that, that's something the comics would often do, was just, you know, what's the coolest thing we can come up with to, to have happen in the alien universe? Okay, we'll do that. <laughs> yeah, the only, the only one of the comics I read is the one they based the Alien versus Predator movie on. And, like, it's the same storyline, basically, but instead of having the concept of, whatever, every hundred years, predators come to Earth and fight aliens in a pyramid, they... For some reason. Yeah, they have it about a uh, a mining settlement on this planet, and it's kind of like a Wild West uh, atmosphere, and then it happens to be at the same time predators were doing a, a big hunt against aliens. And the humans get kind of caught up in the middle, but otherwise the story, what happens in the story, is pretty similar um, to the movie. Um, <clears throat> a fun little anecdote about the first and only time I saw Alien vs. Predator: I paid money to see it in a theater. I'm sorry, and I saw it with two friends of mine. And halfway through the movie, <clears throat> I'm thinking, I'd really like to leave now, but I, I wasn't the one that drove us here. It was. A- it was a friend of mine who drove us there, and so then the movie finishes up, and we all and we walk out, and we all admit almost at the same time that we all wanted to leave at the same point, but nobody wanted to admit it. <laughs> and what point of that movie made you want to walk out? Um, I'm trying to. It, it, it might have been more than halfway through, but I I remember it. it well, it's definitely more than halfway through, but. I remember specifically the slow motion shot of the predator running with the the badass heroin woman 
to confront the aliens, and I'm just thinking, I'm done, guys. I don't... I mean, never was there a more accurate tagline than whoever wins, we lose, because I didn't care. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> wow. Um, okay, so let's give a uh, rating out of five stars for Alien 3. I would give it, oh, gee, I don't know, probably three stars, I guess. I think it's okay. It's better than most people think it is, but it, it certainly gets, I think, better the more you rewatch it. And it's more for the actors and the atmosphere and less about what happens in the movie itself. Uh, Thrasher? Uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna give it uh, three and a half. Uh, I, I certainly think it's an imperfect movie. I don't think it's a bad movie by any means. Uh, and you know I, I understand that the the trials and tribulations the production went through. Uh, and also a lot of that uh, a lot of the the rating I'm giving it comes from the fact that they give uh, Ripley a death scene and that you know she she takes an alien queen down with her even if it is uh, an infant. You know. Which, if had this been the last film in the series, would have been the end of the Xenomorphs. I I love that she gets a martyr's death in this film. I think that's that's very very cool. And Jim, you know, I if you would have asked me, uh, you know, even two weeks ago, I would have said four stars. But now that I've rewatched it, I think I'd actually step it down to three because it is. It is very problematic. Um, there's a there. I, I know, and and I hate to be the guy that judges a movie on what it could have been or what, in my opinion, it mm. quote unquote should have done. But one element that I really would have loved to see played up in this movie to kind of help differentiate from the other ones is, you start out by saying that this is a, a prison colony in which everyone has has devoted themselves to religion, and I really would have loved. And, and there's even a great. That great sequence when Newt and uh, Hicks are being given their their final their final rites, I suppose. Um, there's a great visual contrast between death and life when you know when uh, when the alien is being born, but these people are being you know uh, thrown into the furnace. And I really would have loved to see the the religion angle played up by it, at least in the sense of because the guy who goes crazy later on keeps referring to it as a dragon and i really think if he would have referred to it as a demon and played it more that idea of faith and spirituality i think it could have been really something that differentiated this from 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 the other ones but having said that um it is very problematic as it currently stands and but even based on that i have a question for both of you guys in the sense of how much should we and by we i mean anyone listening to this and anyone who has seen alien 3 how much leeway should we give it considering how much of a problem this film actually was to produce? Because I, I think if this was a smooth production and this was the result they gave us, then yeah, I'd judge it a little bit more harshly. Uh, generally, uh, generally, I try to judge a film purely on its own merits. Uh, and the only time I, I make any any exception... Uh, and Aliens Cooped falls into this range of exception is when the behind-the-scenes story is so fascinating and, and so sort of cluttered with incident. Uh, and and this, this film you know, certainly is with the multiple drafts of the script, the multiple concepts, the fact that they had that they had to use sets built for an earlier version of the film that got canned, and had to, as they were shooting, r- keep writing the script to use the resources they had. 
I, I find that kind of stuff so fa- so fascinating that this is one of one of the instances where I do think uh, uh, we can be more generous to the film because of its uh, because of its background. And uh, if I can comment on what you talked about with with the religion, as I understand it, the religious angle was also a holdover from an earlier version of the movie. That one of the earlier drafts, the whole movie took place on a planet, a, a colony that had willfully given up technology and kind of kept held themselves to a medieval standard of living because the people wanted to live simpler lives and they could live on earth or another colony and that the planet was run by these ludite uh, ludite judeo-christian monks uh and i believe in that version of the script they do believe that the alien is the devil and you know that that, that ripley is sort of seen as this emissary that has whether through action, through no, maybe no, through no fault of her own, brought the devil to their world. Right. I, I remember reading about that and, and that idea that they would, I think that they would uh, force it, forcefully remove it from her as, as a form of exorcism, I believe. Yes, they yeah, talked actually, about I that. That, that, that was going to be one of the alien birthing scenes, was going to involve somebody being exorcised and the chest burster comes out. That would have been really cool. Interesting stuff. Uh, I think. You know, you just have to judge the film as it is, but certainly it could have been a lot worse. Mm-hmm. And that it, it's as good as it is is a kind of a miracle at that. Yeah, Predators could have shown up. <laughs> <laughs> um, and and I'll, I'll admit that, you know, part of the reason that I defend it is because I, I love David Fincher. I mean, I, I think he's... I, he's he's on that list of directors who I will see anything he does, as as we established earlier. Um, but I completely forgot where I was headed with this thought. But oh no, I remember now. Um, but I, I think it's also it is important to keep context in mind because I'm I'm one of those weirdos who actually is a fan of the film Waterworld, and mm-hmm. I think that the primary reason that a lot of people shit talk it is because they know the reputation and haven't bothered seeing it. And if you see it, I'm not going to say it's a great movie, but I'm I'm thinking it's it's going to be better than what you've anticipated it being because, you know, that that's a separate thought. But but I think it is. I think it's it's personally important to keep the context in mind because, I mean, like I said, if I if I was if I was putting myself in David Fincher's shoes and I went through what he did, I would have never wanted to to even complete that movie. Nevertheless, continue on with my filmmaking career. Right. I mean, it was a difficult situation he was thrust into. It's not like he wanted to make it from the beginning. He could never really make it his. He just had to uh, had to finish it. Yeah, and yeah, and, and Thrasher. I'm really hoping that that you're onto something in the sense of maybe, maybe when Fincher. I mean, because he's an older guy now, but maybe when he hits sixty or sixty-five or something, he'll kind of mellow out a little bit and be like, eh, yeah, maybe I'll 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 go back and do something with it because I, I would also, well, I don't, I don't think it would be something as, as much as like, let's see a definitive David Fincher cut, but, um, and maybe that's why he will never do a commentary track on it because there's never going to be a version that he wanted because even from the production standpoint, there he was never able to make what he probably wanted to. So, well, in, in my heart of hearts, I imagine that in, in some future date, he decides to do the commentary, but to make it worthwhile for him, he records the commentary live during a screening of the movie. 
and it's all done for, and and people pay tickets to get in it's all done for charity and then they you know release a special edition of the movie with that commentary and again those proceeds go proceeds go to charity so that you know maybe maybe he would be more motivated if if he knew feel good could come out of uh could come out of this commentary that's an interesting idea yeah we'll just have to see uh let's play pitch a sequel let's pretend they made no sequels to alien 3 what would you do as a sequel? Um, I'll, I'll begin. So, you know, Alien 3 begins with Sigourney Weaver going to her supposed death. And uh, if I was to do a number four, it would be about... take place before Alien 3 and deal with the, uh, the budding relationship between Ripley, Hicks, and Newt on that spaceship. Hmm. And what happened that resulted in the uh, spaceship getting knocked down and crashing onto the planet in Alien 3. And presumably they'd have some sort of alien they'd have to fight that would sneak its way into the spaceships. Because uh, aliens like to sneak into spaceships. It's one of their <laughs> favorite hobbies. Of course. And I would just call it Alien 2.5. God, it's an awful <laughs> title. Okay. Thrasher? I see, you should call it Aliens B4. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Mine, mine would be uh, oh. uh, Within, which I think I might have used as a title for another pitch of sequel. But this one, here, this is where we're going to have the real audacious move. We're not going to show... Uh, we're not going to have aliens in this alien sequel. Uh, what it's going to be about? So the character from Aliens Cubed, who may or may not be an android, that's what this movie is going to be about. Uh, it's going to kind of bridge a gap between Aliens and Blade Runner because uh, there are rogue Wayland Utami Wayland Utani uh, androids who have developed a sense of autonomy, a sense of free will, and no longer want to be property. So they break their programming. They, in fact, you know, reprogram other, you know, robots to give them the same autonomy, uh, and they escape the corporation and go into hiding by scattering throughout uh, human space uh, to the point where some of them, to, uh, to improve their cover, even alter their own memories so that they don't even remember being androids. Uh, and so the whole movie is a, is a paranoid thriller uh, where uh, agents of Wayland yutani show up to this corporation to round up all the rogue androids, and no one on the colony knows who is or is not an android, because who knows, anybody could have been somebody who, who edited their own memories. And it all gets really tense, people get paranoid, people, uh, people kill each other. Finally, uh, when it's all over, there's been a whole lot of unnecessary death and destruction, and uh, the last remaining android uh, decides that, that the human race is too sick to survive. So, having gained access to classified Wayland yutani documents, he takes the last remaining ship and goes to another planet to retrieve a xenomorph egg, and he's going to take that motherfucker to Earth and what, use it to wipe out the human race. Interesting. Huh. Um, well, my, mine is not nearly as good as either of those. Mine would just be uh, 90 minutes of the one-on-one -on -one basketball scene between Ron Perlman and the, the Ripley clone. But... <laughs> huh. No. Just like um, the, full, the full game. <laughs> yeah, exactly. 
Um, the the greatest game of horse ever captured on film. No, um, mine actually mine would be mine would be uh, wouldn't involve Ripley at all. Mine would actually pick up would kind of be the Halloween two of this in the sense that it picks up immediately after Alien three, um, in that Ripley has died and the character that we follow is actually Morse, the the lone prisoner who survived at the end of Alien three, and what I would like to see is that because of the events that transpired. Um, because you have to believe Wayland yutani being a huge corporation has all sorts of government connections, um, they're sort of a, a, a mock, and by mock I mean they, don't, they never really intended to go through with it, but uh, he is, Morse is put on trial for, for the, the murders of, 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 uh, of, of employees of a, a Wayland yutani establishment, essentially, that, that prison, that prison, uh, that, and, um, he is given a choice uh, right before sentencing by uh, the man that we believe to be the so-called creator of Bishop that he can avoid prison time uh, or execution uh, by assisting them with um, hunting down what they think is, is a, another xenomorph or even another different kind of alien on another planet, on another excursion. Um, and I, I think why I think that would be interesting is because then you have a guy who has essentially been a prisoner for we have to believe most of his life, given a chance to become a free citizen by aiding Wayland Yutani in finding a creature that he saw had a significant hand in murdering his colleagues and some of his friends. And I think if you play that up, you kind of have an anti-hero at the center of the story instead of a very clear hero character. Um, and I'd also, as a, I guess, a subplot like to see. And this is a thought I just developed while we were talking about the, the bishop or not bishop earlier. Um, would like to see that there's an eventual revelation that bishop is both an android and the guy that created him because he continues to move his consciousness from model to model of android. So it is the bishop frame, but it is the consciousness of the bishop creator inside of it uh, as an obsessive sort of, um, um, what is the... Um, what what's the the name of the the guy in in, in Greek mythology who keeps rolling the stone up the hill and then it keeps falling oh, back Sisyphus. down? Sisyphus, Sisyphus. yes, yeah, so it's kind of a, a Sisyphusian, a Sisyphusian, I guess, task of this guy really wants an alien so bad that this is how he's perpetuating his life in order for him to achieve one. I was um, looking up some research. Apparently, there's a, a book called David Fincher Interviews. Okay. It's a collection of interviews he did, and uh, there's a quote from him about his relationship with uh, one of the producers that said in a conference call, um, "Why you're why you're listening to Fincher for? He's a shoe salesman." <clears throat> Referring to all the Nike commercials David Fincher directed. Ah. Uh. And that gives you a. I haven't read the whole article, but that gives you a taste of just some of the mood on that set. So yeah, that it, that it turned out cool at all is is pretty neat. Let's move yeah. on to um, sequel news. Is well, there anything? Uh, yes. What is it, Thrasher? Yeah, this is kind of interesting. So uh, Kim Stanley Robinson wrote a, a, a trilogy of novels: uh, Red Mars, uh, Green Mars, and Blue Mars. All all about these science fiction histories about how Mars gets terraformed and becomes a civilized planet. Well. 
Spike TV has bought the rights to adapt the first book in the series uh, into a television series, and they've just hired uh, Babylon 5 creator J. Michael Straczynski uh, to, to lead up the writing for that show. Hmm. Does it, does that, does, I never read the novel, but does it seem as at odds with what people think of when they think of Spike TV? <laughs> yes, but only because Spike TV kind of falls into that what's the cheapest show we can do kind of network where everything is just some mildly dysfunctional people doing a slightly weird job in front of a shaky camera. <laughs> what what is what are the highlights or, or I guess some of the the some of the stuff that Spike TV trouts out these days cuz I I haven't I haven't watched Spike TV in a long time. I don't remember what uh, reruns of Cops and a show called Auction Hunters. <laughs> okay. It's a um, lot of reality the... TV. Oh, and a lot of those talking heads things where they have uh, C-list comedians uh, talking over uh, footage of car chases and security camera things. Oh, okay. Wow, so they've they've uh, they've even fallen further from grace when they were just playing um, wrestling and, uh, and running Stimpy episodes. Yeah. Yeah, they have a series on there called Frankenfood, where they talk about such creations as the ribsicle. <laughs> that sounds like a sexual act. It might be, for all I know. I don't know. <laughs> I, I really hope nobody at Spike TV brags about working at Spike TV. <laughs> There's got to be that one person who yeah, who goes probably who goes home. Executive. Yeah, he goes home for the holidays, and he's the Spike TV guy. He's the one guy that made it from the town. Yeah, or, or he's he's even the guy that's trying to get into all the Hollywood parties. You have, like, the executives from FX in there and AMC. <laughs> and, and he, Oh, sorry, you're not on the guest list, buddy. Yeah, that's funny. Um, one piece of news I saw that struck me as odd, I didn't even remember they were doing this, uh, Mila Jovovich says they're going to be filming uh, the next Resident Evil film in August which will make it the sixth Resident Evil film. <laughs> and they were going to film it last year, but then she got pregnant, so... Oh, right. When are they just going to do a Resident Evil Underworld crossover? Um, gee, you know, they might as well. I, I think what I heard is, after this movie, they're either going to reboot the film series or they're going to do a TV series based on Resident Evil. Um, have you seen any of those movies, Jim? I I saw... The first two, I believe, and I and I, while I don't like Paul W. S. Anderson, I I think that the first one's okay. Uh -huh. um, I didn't care for the second one because I, I I used to be a big fan of the Resident Evil game series, uh, and I thought that the second one, which attempted to bring in the um, I I don't know the name of the character, that big hulking beast uh, guy. Nemesis. Yes, that's it. Um, I thought. That that's a character that doesn't translate well to film. Uh, he works as a video game character, but as a movie character, it's like I can't take this guy seriously. Um, and then just kind of stop paying attention after that. Um, I I I haven't read it yet, but I should read. I, I guess the the screenplay that George Romero wrote for Resident Evil is readily available online, and I should probably take a peek at that. Um, oh yeah, because I'm a Romero fan, and I have to imagine anything is probably better than what that series has become. I never read that 
either. I mean, by the time they get to the fifth Resident Evil movie, they're going through virtual reality environments and bringing back characters that died two movies ago. Mm. And Resident Evil 5 literally ends at the White House. Um, so <laughs> you'll have to see where they go from there, I guess. Well, I, I mean, one one thing I guess... One, <laughs> one, the only thing I need to know about the later Resident Evil films is that Armin White is a fan of them, so... Ah, yeah. He's, um... You know, I wonder with Ard- film critic Ardman White if he's just playing a joke on everyone. I'm not I... sure. It's just... Because <laughs> his reviews are really well-written and, and very uh, very detailed. Mm-hmm. I, part of me is really hoping that he'll eventually admit, like, guys, I was joking the whole time. And if that's the case, then it would be, like, the film critic equivalent of, I guess, Andy Kaufman. Uh, like... <laughs> But I think I think maybe it might have started out as a little bit of he's like he wanted to be a countercultural guy and now he just believes it. On some blog, some guy did an article that was it was like what if Arvin White uh, did a review of Star Wars in 1977, <laughs> and it's very funny. They do a good job of copying his style. Oh man, um, and and I know at least in terms of sequel news specifically related to to the Alien franchise, I know they're. Prometheus 2 is eventually happening. Right. Um, and this kind of ties into my, or, or I'm curious about it, because apparently one of the characters who is tagged to Prometheus 2 is um, Morse, the character that was the lone survivor from Alien 3. Really? Interesting. Huh. And, I, and I, I don't know, maybe that's IMDb misreporting, but I'm really wondering how that comes into play, because this is almost well this is more than 20 years later after the after alien 3 so this guy's going to clearly be older so he's not going to be able to play a guy in a, a flashback of, of what brought morse to the to the prison planet so i don't know i i'm curious as to how that's going to work not curious enough to cough up money to see the movie when it finally comes out but curious enough to ask a friend who will see it uh prometheus i liked some of it and I would rather for the sequel they go further away from Alien. I mean, I think aside from the way like the sets look and stuff, uh, Prometheus doesn't have a whole lot to do with Alien. And yeah, I don't. Would that be interesting if they brought someone from Alien Three? But certainly, and it, yeah, and I, you know, we shouldn't talk too much about it because I know you guys are going to have an episode about it. Sure, uh, but indeed. Yeah, it, it it did strike me as it was trying to have its cake and eat it too. And was probably the most gorgeous piece of garbage movie you'll ever see in your life. Certainly. Well, uh, now um, we're going to move on to what you're watching, where we talk about movies we've been watching. Uh, Jim, what have you been watching? Yeah, um, I, I mean, I've been this month on on I do movies badly. I'm I'm focusing on on Juan Carwai, but. I don't want to talk too much about that because then why would you listen to my episodes? So go and listen to my episodes. But uh, re- recently I have been uh, revisiting The Wire, uh, the the show uh, on HBO. I saw it for the first time a few years ago, and like many people who saw it, I thought it was the greatest TV show that's ever existed. Um, and I've always been afraid to revisit it because since then I've seen a whole bunch of other fantastic shows and have been a little bit worried that the loud uh, declarations I've been making about how great The Wire is might 
wither under the the harsh sunlight of uh, a Breaking Bad or of The Sopranos or of some other shows which are uh, either currently coming out or that I have recently caught up on. So I've been revisiting The Wire. I'm most of the, I'm most of the way through season one right now, um, and so far so good. It's, it's still it's still holding up. Uh, and if anybody hasn't seen it, uh, it's on HBO Go. But I believe all five seasons are also currently uh, free to stream on uh, Prime if you have a- Amazon Prime. Okay. Yeah. Um... The Wire. I've never. I've seen some of it, but I need to go and watch the whole thing. I think I, I watched a few episodes of season two and was quite confused because <laughs> that's happened to be what was new on TV at the time. I was uh, living with a relative for a few month for a month or two. Oh, okay. Uh, so I do have an HBO subscription, so I, I have no excuse. It's all on there. But I, I did watch a documentary from HBO called "Seduced and Abandoned." Yes. Hmm. Did you see that one? Yeah, James Toback and uh, Alec Baldwin. That's right. And I guess it's kind of a mockumentary. I don't really know, but they seem sincere in what they're trying to do. And it's uh, Toback and Baldwin go to the Cannes Film Festival to secure financing for a film that would be like a a sexual drama in the vein of Last Tango in Paris. Um, And it's about how nobody is really interested in it unless it costs next to nothing. And everyone has their own idea of who the actress in the movie should be. They start off with the intention of it being, ah, geez, the girl from Scream, Naomi Campbell. And yes. instead, Nev- 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 and, and that's right. Sorry, that's someone. Naomi Campbell, someone's different. Nev Campbell. And yeah. instead, they run into you know people suggesting, oh, we, well, we'll give you a lot of money if Natalie Portman's in it. Yes. And they have to start backpedaling on on their pitches, and uh, it. It's an interesting watch. I think the part that didn't work for me is they have random interviews with people throughout the movie. And Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like Ryan Gosling makes an appearance in there. Yeah, and I mean, the stories are interesting. And uh, Francis Ford Coppola is in there talking about how one of his sons died. And unless you know a lot about Francis Ford Coppola, you'll have no idea what he's talking about. <laughs> because there's no uh, context for it. Yeah, it's... It is interesting, uh, and I, I I don't think they ever were making a movie. I think it was more just we're going to go to Cannes under the guise of making movies so that we can show you, the audience, how many hoops you have to jump through in order for a film to get made and financed. Exactly. Although, wouldn't it be great if, in the course of doing that, they did accidentally secure financing for that film, <laughs> financing and distribution, make it a whole producer's thing? Oh shit, we got to make it now. Um, yeah. <laughs> But which also would probably lead to another fascinating documentary. Yeah, it reminds me a bit of a, a film I saw in 2002 called All the Love You Can um, that's from Troma. Oh, yeah. That is uh, kind of a similar concept, but on a much <laughs> much lower budget. <laughs> so. Yeah, I, I've, I've heard of that, and it's been... I, honestly, I think it's been on my Netflix queue since college, and I still <laughs> haven't seen it. You know, if you go on YouTube, and I think the channel's called Troma Films, Troma put pretty much all their old movies for free on YouTube. Oh, okay. So you can you can find stuff on there. Uh, Thrasher, what's something you've been watching? Uh, let's see, uh, recently watched uh, the new Space Pirate Captain Harlock movie. Is that uh, anime? 
Uh, yes. Although it's it's the new movie. It's really interesting. It's all done in uh, it's all done in 3D with CGI, but they they strike a uh, a very good balance between having the characters look the way they do in the old anime from the 70s and having them look like real people. Is it a new story, or are they just retelling stories from the TV show? Uh, like like all Harlock stories, it is a new story that has that keeps no continuity with any of the other Harlock stories, which is something I actually like about the character. The only thing that stays consistent is Harlock and his ship. Uh, the stories all stand on their own, take place in different universes. Uh, and and that's that's something I, I like that I see I see I wish would happen in like American animation and comic books just a cavalier disregard for continuity. That is kind of surprising after all these years of anime, you know, becoming sort of popular and everything. That there hasn't really been a lot of American animation that in theaters, I guess at least, that is aimed for an older audience. Or if it does, it's mainly for comedies. Well, it's because the people in suits running uh, the studios have no idea what animation is good for, aside from selling Happy Meals. <laughs> yeah, you know, it, if, it, if they could find if they could find a way to sell Last Days in Coney Island, Last Days of Coney Island Happy Meals, I'm sure Ralph Bakshi would have would have been able to make that movie ten or more years ago. <laughs> and yeah, it, it's weird that as as a culture, Americans still. God, we, we really can't get past cartoons to a mainstream audience, at least, as, as anything more than, than kids' entertainment. Um, I, I mean, I just, if anyone out there listens to podcasts, I, I listened to a WTF with Mark Marin, and he just did a, an episode with Mike Judge. And, nice. Oh, okay. And, and he, he talks about, I, I mean, just the vitriol he got when Beavis and Butthead came out because at that point, cartoons were, I mean, you didn't do adult cartoons, you just didn't. It was like he was defiling this sacred medium and we still really haven't caught up to that despite guys like bill plimpton who are doing like great amazing and like uh mature things with animation but yeah i mean i think it'll maybe it'll get there maybe it's really the internet is more for for people to to fool around and and really sort of smaller independent projects i don't, I don't really know i mean i did uh, read a bit of read some interviews this morning about there's the the George Lucas uh, produced animated film Strange Magic. Oh yeah. Which looks bizarre. I'm not, I guess it's aimed at kids, but stuff looks kind of darker looking. Mm -hmm. And it literally is all about characters falling in love um, while they're singing pop tunes for 75% of the picture. Well, they fall in love because their partners aren't like sand. Oh, you and your Attack of the Clones jokes. <laughs> Be gone. Yeah. Um, all right, so Thrasher, it's time for the Paul Goebel Memorial Mashup. Why don't you explain that? Uh, ah, yeah, it's the Paul Goebel Show Memorial Mashup, where I take two horrific impressions, combine them into one Frankenstein's monster of an impression, which goes on a rampage through everyone's ears, killing lots of villagers, uh, <laughs> and then everybody hates me for it. Uh, that's the Paul Goebel Show Memorial Mashup. And uh, Matt and our guests have to figure out what this combined impression is. I, I, I listened to this for, with, the, um, with the episode for Alien that you did with Tyler, and I, 
I, I, I'm not going to do well just because I did not pick up on what you were doing at all until you said it, so. <laughs> Alright. Well, are you both ready? Yeah. yeah. Oh, oh, can, can we talk? You know, I've been in pictures forever. I've been in pictures since I was a kid. Oh, oh, it was Joe Dante who discovered me. But, you know, they say my best work would have been ahead of me. At least it would have if, if I hadn't died in front of a nightclub. Oh, uh, I think I got it. Do you have a guess, Jim? I, I half of it, but okay. What's yeah, your that's half? always the way it goes. Joan Rivers. Yeah, and the other half—it's Joan River Phoenix. <laughs> is that right? Yep. Yep. And this—this this is the first mashup that made me sad because I really <laughs> like those two people, and I was hoping not to horribly disrespect both of their legacies for a gag. If if you would have done something. If you would have done something in that tone of voice, talking about how you have a strange obsession with Japanese culture, I would have said Joan Rivers Cuomo. Oh, wow. <laughs> I'm going to have to file that away for a future episode. <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah, if you haven't seen it, the Joan Rivers documentary is pretty good. Um, can't think of the name of it, though. A piece of work. piece of work. There you go. No, that, Not to be that's confused a... with the documentary about Shecky Spielboig, A Piece of Work. Oh boy! Jeez, I thought I thought a piece of work was a was about Elaine Stritch. Was it? I'm gonna look this up. Because oh. Joan, Joan Rivers is like Joan Rivers can't stop or something like that. I thought it's called Joan Rivers a piece of work. Um, oh, what am I? Th- oh, you know what I'm thinking about? Conan O'Brien can't stop. Where did that come from? Ah, yeah. Which that that's the power pretty, of the mashup. Yeah, that one's pretty good too about him going on tour. Um, yeah. A friend of mine got to see him uh, at the first venue he was at in Eugene, Oregon. And he said, like, the tickets sold out, like, in a stupidly fast amount of time. But So he had to drive, like, three hours from Portland to where the concert was and drive three hours back and then go to work the next day. And you know what, you know what would have been even worse about that drive for him? What? If Predators showed up. That's, <laughs> yes, yeah. You gotta watch out for those... Uh, predators with the with the late night driving nothing <laughs> ruined your day like a predator it is true what they say if they if they win we lose yeah yeah you know no you're, matter you're who wait- wins we lose you're, you're you're waiting in the doctor's office for the test results to come back and he comes in and said i'm sorry sir it's predators like that <laughs> and then your head gets ripped off and your spine dangles out the back <laughs> <laughs> I do have a funny alien versus predator story. So my wife is terrified of both the alien and the predator. Mm. And um, early on when we were, were dating before we were married, we were just flipping through TV. Uh, I think we're, I, we're visiting family on the East Coast. And all of a sudden, alien versus predator is on sci-fi channel. And my wife just starts screaming, turn it off, turn it off, turn it off. And it's not because it was a bad movie. She's just terrified of those two creatures. She thinks they're way too scary, and two of them in one film was too much. <laughs> so we call it double whammy. Right, yeah, but it was a really intense reaction I wasn't expecting to a shitty slow-motion fight scene between <laughs> aliens and predators as green blood splooshes everywhere and the camera spins around. <laughs> oh, man. So, Jim, where can people listen to your podcast at? 
Sure. Um, well, I Do Movies Badly can be found <clears throat> certainly on iTunes. And uh, if you go to, uh, to battleshippretension.com um, and go to podcast category, uh, you can find me there. I don't have my own website for I Do Movies Badly because, frankly, I'm way too lazy for that. Uh, but those are, and, and I also have, you can find me on Podbean as well. I don't have the, the URL with me, but um, I'm on Facebook too, facebook.com slash I do movies badly. Um, and then I don't have a channel specific Twitter handle because, once again, too lazy. So just my personal one is where you can find me, and that's uh, twitter.com slash Nolan Fixes Teeth. Um, and if I may so selfishly explain my unusual Twitter handle, comes from a story in which a few years ago I was having a conversation with a friend uh, and telling him that I had a dream in which Christopher Nolan was my dentist. And I told him, I guess the subconscious thought being if he can fix the Batman franchise, he can fix my teeth. So <laughs> Nolan fixes teeth is, is, is what, uh, what came out of that. This is the filling your mouth deserves. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> yeah. Um, so that's that's um, that's pretty much it, I guess. Um, yeah, that's pretty much it. Okay, uh, if you're in the Portland, Oregon area, you can find me hosting a pub quiz for Geeks Who Drink Tuesdays at the Iconic Lounge from 8 to 10 p.m. It's a free-to-play and a lot of fun. Also on Twitter, follow me at SequelCast. You can follow me on Twitter at Internet Mayor. You can also support me on uh, Patreon. Uh, just look for Willie T, uh, supporting my uh, podcasting and uh, tabletop and live action game development. All right, and uh, thanks for uh, coming on, Jim, to discuss Alien Three. Yeah, thanks for having me, guys. This was, was I say in, term, in, in terms of a of a, a first guest spot, it wasn't an abject failure. <laughs> Much like Alien Three itself. <laughs> um, oh, here's here's a question I had for you guys. Um, I have this vague recollection in my head, and correct me if I'm wrong. Um, did you guys do a, a series on was it the View Askew universe? Because I seem to remember the first time yes. I was exposed to you guys was on Clerks Two. Okay, so that was a thing. Yes. Yeah, we did, and um, that was voted upon by our listeners. That's what they wanted us to do, and yeah, it was weird revisiting those films i think um i haven't seen kevin smith's latest film uh oh, tusk. Tusk. tusk but a few years ago i did get to see him do a live q a after watching jay and silent bob's groovy cartoon movie um and if you ever if he's ever in town and you get to see him live and you like his stuff i think you'll, you'd get a kick out of it uh although it's a little bit expensive for a ticket i think i paid like 60 dollars maybe thank you and those are for the cheap seats. I think you could pay like three hundred bucks and get a photo taken with them. Instead of um, front. I'll, I'll just I'll just watch the YouTube clip of him telling the Superman story again, and I'll be fine. <laughs> yeah. Speaking Classic. of which, what there was a Kickstarter for that, um, the making of that Superman film that would have starred Nicolas Cage. Yes, I absolutely see. And uh, I wonder when it's coming out. But yeah, looks good. Okay. Well, thank thanks again, Jim. Have yeah. Thank you guys. Appreciate it. Sure. Good episode. Yeah, I think so too. Any last uh, things you want to add? Uh no, I don't. I don't think so. Just that you know, I I gotta praise this movie for killing off Ripley, something that I knew couldn't last because I knew there would have to be a sequel. <laughs> yeah, this will be a teaser for the next episode, but 
uh, in the making ofs, they describe as one of the reasons why they rushed to make Alien Resurrection was to prevent them from making an Alien versus Predator movie. Really? Sigourney Weaver's like Alien versus Predator. That's fine as a comic, but that'd be really stupid as a movie. We gotta, is, you know, we should come out with ours first. Which is, you know, I'll talk about this if we do that planned uh, Alien spinoff spectacular. But the script for uh, Alien vs. Predator that was floating around at the time actually seemed pretty good. What we got was nowhere near that script, though. I think it was a literal transcription of the original comic series. Uh, I'll, 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 I'll save it for the episode. <laughs> okay. But Fair. I disagree. Fair enough. So, uh, for the sequel cast, this is Matt. And this is Thrasher. Saying. I don't remember any lines from this movie. <laughs> oh, look! It's an alien! Coming out of a dog! What? What's that? He's munching on my head! Oh, no! <laughs> I'm Palm again! The sequel cast is a Hipster Goblin production. This program is a proud member of the Battleship Pretension Fleet. 